Father, the words that we sang were the expression of a regenerate heart that longs for the return of the Son. And our Lord, we do long for your return. And even as we will consider this morning in your own words to us about that return, that it should produce in us lives of faithfulness and obedience and anticipation. May those be more than words that we sing, but the reality of our hearts tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and until we meet again next Lord's Day. Would you shape us and mold us to be more effective and faithful servants of Christ, heeding both the encouragement and the warning that your word gives us in light of your soon and coming return. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear from your word this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Once again, to Matthew chapter 24 as we're been making our way through this incredible section of Scripture. We will be finishing up chapter 24 this morning and beginning chapter 25, of course, next week. And as we look at this portion of Scripture, Jesus is now giving us here essentially the second application of His teaching about His return. His teaching about His return to earth, ultimately His physical return in the second coming of Christ where He executes judgment on all of the world of the unbelieving and establishes His kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And one dominating theme, really beginning in verse 36, is that it is a coming that will be unexpected. It's going to be by surprise for those who are on the earth at that time. It will catch them unaware. It will catch them unaware. And this morning, laying before us, Jesus gives us both an encouragement and a warning in light of His unexpected return. And these encouragement and this warning involve both the goodness and the severity of God. The goodness and the severity of God. And each bears its full weight. The display of God's goodness in this passage, His encouragement, is overflowing with abundant grace. Overflowing with hope to those who have truly trusted Him. The severity is terrifying. It is a warning of eternal punishment for those who are outside of His grace, who refuse His calls of mercy, the provision of forgiveness and reconciliation in His Son. Now the overall point is to encourage faithfulness to Christ by then providing both a positive and a negative example of what it means then to be, as He just commanded us in the previous section, to be alert and to be watchful. What does it mean to be watchful? Well, we considered that in some detail last week, but here Jesus gives His own illustration in the example of these two slaves. I'll read the passage then, and then we'll look at it. More closely. So begin reading with me in verse 45 to the end of the chapter in verse 51. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave then will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know. 
and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look back at verse 45 and let's look at see two examples to heed. Faithful wisdom and foolish self-indulgence. Faithful witness and foolish self-indulgence. And as I mentioned earlier, here is the Lord's second parable where he's addressing two types of responses to his teaching about his return, that he is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. In each of these examples, the Lord typifies the spiritual character and the spiritual consequences of those who respond with wisdom and faithfulness and those who respond with unfaithfulness and therefore foolishness. So he gives the character and the consequences of these two types of responses. And so we will look at both of them under those two headings. What is the spiritual character of the faithfulness? And the end of that faithfulness, what is the spiritual character of the wicked? And then what will be the end of their ways? So note first then the encouragement to faithfulness. He says in verse 45, Who then is the faithful and wise slave whom the Lord will put in charge over his house to give them their food in the proper time? Let's note in this statement then, the spiritual character of the wise slave. And notice first, though, that he begins with a question. He begins with a question. Who, then, is the faithful and wise slave? God often asks questions. He often asks questions for the purpose of inviting those whom he is asking to self-reflection, to consider their ways, as it were, to consider the answer to that question in relation to themselves. And so he's doing that here. He's asking them, so in effect they could say, am I this slave? Am I the faithful and the wise slave? Or am I this foolish slave who was unfaithful to the Lord? And so in answering this question then, the hearer becomes more involved. He becomes more engaged with what he is saying. In other words, you have to think about it. And the first thing that he wants us to think about then is the spiritual character of the wise and the faithful slave. And in thinking about it, he's then calling us to examine our own lives. Our own lives. So you're asking yourself then, as we walk through this and And those who hear these words throughout the ages, am I this faithful and wise slave? Does this describe me? Or does the negative example describe me? Who then is this slave? Who is the slave? Now this has very often been understood by many as a reference specifically and to some even exclusively of spiritual leaders. Of spiritual leaders. Look at the slave. He is a faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. In other words, this is a slave who's identified by the responsibility that he's giving. It's a responsibility to care for others who are in the household of this master or of the Lord. And there is here a particular application to spiritual leaders. We're all familiar with The warning in James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you shall incur a stricter judgment. There is a higher level of accountability for those who would take the place of teaching God's word. They will be held to a stricter judgment. They will be held to a higher account. They have a greater responsibility. 
So it's not something that you enter into lightly, certainly not for selfish motives. And in fact, Jesus has just warned the false leaders of the nation of Israel about the devastating consequences of their ministry that was not leading people to God, but in fact was leading them away from God. He says in verse 15, I'll just read it of chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land and make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And he repeats the indictment over and over, Woe to you, woe to you, you blind guides, woe to you, you hypocrites. And it, and it may be that Jesus has that in the background of his mind here as he is addressing this wise slave, here in a positive sense, previously in a negative sense. It might be that he has the idea of spiritual leadership in his mind. And if so, and indeed it is so that these words then are a clear encouragement and a warning to those in spiritual leadership to be faithful, to be faithful. However, the principle goes beyond that. And of course, throughout the rest of Scripture, all believers in Christ are described as slaves. As a matter of fact, over in verse 14 of chapter 25, just notice there, he gives an example here of slaves who were given abilities for which they will be held account. And he says, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And indeed, there it seems that the more general point is all of those who are identified with him. All of those who are given some kind of responsibility for which they would be held accountable. In other words, the larger point here then is speaking of spiritual discipleship. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 37 of Mark 13, in a parallel context, he says, What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Be on the alert. And so Jesus here is addressing the type of slave that has been given a task to do, and he does it. That's the broader point, that he's been given a task to do, and he does it. And this is the faithful and the wise Slave, the faithful and the wise slave. Now let's just notice here then four characteristics of this faithful slave. This faithful and wise or sensible slave, as it says in the New American Standard. He is, first of all, faithful. He's faithful. And by this marker here, he's identifying this particular slave as a believer. This is a believer. This is a Christian. This is one who is... Regenerate, who has been born again. And he identifies this one as being faithful. In other words, the reality of his faith is demonstrated in his life. This is an important marker of saving faith. As James reminds us, faith without works is dead. A saving faith is the kind of faith who works. I had this discussion with one of my daughters this week who asked the question, Oh, is there a kind of faith then that doesn't save And yes, there is a kind of faith that doesn't save. James identifies it at least right there. It's the kind that doesn't work, that isn't marked by obedience of life. But this is one who is marked by obedience. This is a slave who is faithful. Spurgeon said, I say again that detailed obedience is the truest evidence that the Lord has forgiven your sin, end quote. And that is a true statement. 
So this faithful slave then is one who has believed the promises and the word of God and particularly in this context has believed everything that God has said about his return. Everything that Christ has said about his return. This is one then who has in light of that truth lived a life that is ready to stand before the Lord. That is ready to be in the presence of Christ. And in fact... This description of being faithful is, is really such a beautiful term. It's a, it's a very endearing term. It's a, it's a lovely term, if you will. It's a lovely description. It has the idea inherent in it of trustworthiness, of trustworthiness, of reliability, of integrity. One who can be entrusted with a responsibility and follow through. Indeed, it's a description, one of the wonderful descriptions of God, who is a faithful God. God is faithful, is repeated throughout Scripture. He's faithful to His promises. He's faithful to His Word. He's always a faithful God who can be trusted. Christ is described as faithful, written on His side when He's pictured there in His coming on the white horse in Revelation 19, is one who is faithful and true. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's what the Spirit then produces in the life of those who know Christ. Faithfulness. It's what God delights in. Again, it's a beautiful term. Proverbs 12, 22 says this, that those who deal faithfully are His delight. When God's people are faithful, it actually brings pleasure to Him. He delights in it. He finds joy in seeing His faithful children. It's said of Moses, it's said of Samuel, it's said of Epaphras and Colossians and Tychicus and Onesimus. And Paul said of his ministry, it's required of a steward that he be found faithful. The NASB says trustworthy. Same word here though for faithful. Faithful. That's what God requires. What does God want from your life and from my life? He wants faithfulness. Simply to be faithful. Parents can understand this. What a delight it is when you can give your children instructions, leave the room or leave the home and know that when you come back, your instructions will have been carried out faithfully and dutifully and with excellence, with a desire to please you for their obedience. It brings great delight to a parent when that happens. It brings, it brings happiness. And it's no less the case to God, our Father, when He gives us an instruction and we are faithful. He delights in it. He delights in it. And in fact, because of that kind of faithfulness and trustworthiness, it makes you want to entrust to your children greater responsibility. It makes you want to give to them a greater amount of privilege. And so it is with this slave here. He is faithful. This faithful slave is how he describes the one who is ready for his return and the one who is watchful. He is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And again, it speaks here really of an inner disposition. It's an attitude of the heart. It's one who displays what really their convictions and their values are and the things that they rest in and build their life on. It's demonstrated by their faithfulness. And the handmaid to that faithfulness here is spiritual wisdom. What does alertness look like? It is to be faithful, and this faithfulness is also marked by Wisdom, spiritual wisdom. Here in the NASB, it's described as sensible. It's the same ideas uh, working together. 
One describes it in this way, helpfully. It's a wise and judicious behavior that should characterize those who are in the kingdom of God. And it really then involves the idea of spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment, the kind of discernment that recognizes not simply blatant wickedness and that which is clearly righteous, but the kind of discernment that can weed through the subtleties of life and the subtleties of this world and act faithfully and obedient and not be veered off course from their task, but do those things uh, that God has assigned to them with effectiveness because of a commitment to honor God in everything. That's the idea of it here. He's faithful and he's wise. It's the wisdom that flows from true faith and wisely trusts and remains faithful to the Lord. Now Jesus has already identified, in fact, this person back in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and, and he, of course, at the end, Matthew 7 is there at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's describing those who are in the kingdom of God. And so he's spoken to them with authority. He's taught them about righteousness and about the kingdom and the character of those who are in the kingdom. And he says this at the end in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And there he equates the wise person who not only hears the word, but then acts on them and builds for themselves a sure foundation, a confident foundation, that when accountability comes, when there is the time to stand before the Lord, that they will stand secure. They stand on a strong foundation. That is the wise person. The foolish, of course, in that verse, is the one who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. Will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Of course, Jesus will address that foolish slave next, but here he is the wise one who was wise and believed the promises of God and was faithful to the word that they had received and was watchful over their soul and over their life and was obedient to the Lord. What a beautiful picture. And so really, the idea behind this faithfulness is as well, he is not only faithful and wise, but he then is obedient. Obedience. And that's really what sums this up in many ways. He was an obedient Obedience is the hallmark of saving faith, and it is here then the hallmark of what it means to be watchful. What does it mean to be watchful and ready and alert for the Lord? It is to walk in obedience to Him. It says He put Him in charge of His household to give them their food at the proper time. The point there, broadly, is He was given a responsibility and He followed through with the responsibility that He was given. Doesn't matter if it's a large task, doesn't matter if it's a small task. It is, he was faithful to do what God had commanded him to do, what his master in this parable had commanded him to do. Now, in reference to leaders, of course, the application is 
to be faithful to the word of God. There's a responsibility of shepherding to feed the sheep. And the faithful shepherd is going to be one who feeds them well and who feeds them on the truth of the word of God. But again, broadly, the idea is to be obedient to the Lord's commands. So when he returns, he says, at the end of verse 46, the master or the Lord will find him so doing when he comes. He'll find him so doing when he comes. And this applies to every Christian. It is what will be repeated in another way in verse 21 of chapter 25. It's the one, the servant, the slave who was given talents and uses them faithfully, that the master will say in verse 21, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And so he said to the other slave who had been given less but was just as faithful, he says, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. There is here in this faith then and this faithfulness and this wisdom, this life that's characterized as being watchful, as being ready to stand before the Lord, the idea of love for the master, a trust in him. There is the idea of a devotion, a loving devotion. Uh, a desire to please, a desire to honor him, a desire to be found faithful when he returns, when he returns. But the idea is that he was obedient and that he is obedient and that the person who is watchful is careful to be obedient in all of their life, obedient to all of the Lord's commands. And I want to make just one footnote here as we walk through this. That this is the constant theme and it's repetitive, it's repeated every week because it is so important. And it's something that the Lord continues to emphasize. It is something that he wants us to know, it's something that he wants us to embrace. And we see it so little embraced in much of our theological conversations about the end of the days. And that is... That the idea, the reality of the Lord's return is to produce in us obedience. Obedience. That's the effect that it's to have. Godliness. We so often, when we mention the word eschatology again, we get into discussions where the idea of the production of godliness is far behind the theme of, or the attitude, it seems, so often it is discussed. Yes, there are details and disagreements, but the idea is that the standing before the Lord, whatever the details of his return, should produce in us a heart of obedience and godliness. Godliness. Let me repeat to you words that you're familiar with. I'll repeat them. Since all these things in 2 Peter 3 are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. That is the goal of all of these things. And let me note just one more point here then. He's faithful, he's wise, and he's obedient. And this really could be on its own or a fourth characteristic, but it's really a larger dynamic that is the theme throughout uh, this section of Scripture, and really out throughout all of Scripture. And it sums up everything else. And it's namely this, 
that the one who is watchful, the one who is prepared, the one who is on the alert, the one who is demonstrating the reality of spiritual life and the reality of a life ready to stand before the Lord, lives joyfully and lovingly under the authority of his master. He lives joyfully and lovingly under the authority of his master. Now the language here, it's the term that can be translated either master or lord, but the language here is of lord or master and slave. Lord and master and slave. Those are the words that are used. And that relationship is fundamentally then a relationship of authority and submission. Of a command and then obedience. That's fundamentally what that relationship is in terms of how it works itself out. Of authority and submission. And here, however, it's more than that. It is of a good and gracious master. And it is a slave who serves that good master out of love. And again, this is the evidence of genuine faith and spiritual life. There is, at the moment of salvation, when it is the faith that is the gift of the Holy Spirit... A desire to call out then on the name of the Lord. Call out on the name of the Lord. Yes, to be saved, but it is a calling out that as well exchanges your life for his life. That says, I no longer am the authority, but now you are the authority. My will is bent to you. My affections are captured by you. My life is now under your control. Yours is to command, mine is to obey. That's what salvation looks like. And that is what the Lord is demonstrating here in this faithful slave. It is in salvation then an internal attitude of submission that flows from spiritual fear and reverence and trust and love for the Lord. That's what marks spiritual life. Spiritual life. We'll mention this again in another way in just a bit. But here then, it is a life then that from the heart, from the inner reality of his thoughts and his motives and what he loves and what he values and what he treasures is obedient to the Lord. It's what marks spiritual character and spiritual life. It is to live under joyful, joyfully under the authority of a master. He says in 1 John 5.3 this... Consider these words. Don't let them just roll off. Consider him. This is the one who is genuinely knows the Lord, who has spiritual life, who is a son of God. He keeps his commandments, and his commandments are not... Can you finish the word? Are not what? Are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. It isn't a chore for this person to obey the Lord. If one is that faithful slave, it's not... A drudgery. It's not a burden. It's not something that you look at as, oh, I have to obey the Lord. I have to do this thing because I'm a Christian. If I don't, the Lord is going to get me. It is to obey the Lord with delight. It is to obey the Lord and His commands are not burdensome. In fact, they are from the, from the Lord who says that His yoke is easy and His burden is light because He cares because he carries it with us and for us by his own grace. A mark of spiritual life then is to feel inwardly compelled and desirous to obey our Lord because he is our master and because we know we will stand before him and we want when we stand before him in that moment to present to him a life that was faithful, that was faithful, that was obedient to the end, that was careful to do everything to please him. 
Someone who is born again, someone who has received that life-giving reality and work of the Spirit of God, does not need external constraints and threats to be obedient. That is immaturity. That is what would display a life that is not faithful and indeed does not know the Lord necessarily. The the reality of the new covenant, the reality of what Christ accomplished for us, what he purchased for us and what he gave to us, in fact, even what we celebrate in the cup this morning, is the reality of a new heart and the indwelling reality of the Holy Spirit that is constrained by love for Christ in obedience. Not fear of punishment, but love for Christ. And that is absolutely huge. Paul says the love of Christ controls us. And that is what is the picture here in this faithful and sensible slave. He was given a task to do. The idea is he loves his master. He wants to please his master. And so he is faithful to his master, though he is delayed in his coming. And it has spiritual consequences. And as spiritual consequences, that kind of life, he is blessed. He is blessed and rewarded. This person who is watchful in this way will be blessed and rewarded. Look at what he says in verse 46. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. He's blessed. He's blessed. And we've covered this many times before. But the general idea of blessed, the basic foundational idea of being blessed in this sense is to be in a right relationship with God. It is the joy, it is the satisfaction, it is the delight that comes from being reconciled to God, to living in fellowship with Him. As a matter of fact, that idea of blessedness is attached to those very things throughout Scripture. It's the idea of having your sins forgiven. How blessed, David cried, is the man whose sins are forgiven. To whom the one does not account or impute or reckon iniquity, the guilt of sin. That is the man that is blessed and it produces joy. It brings spiritual life and health to walk in that manner before the Lord. It is to live in spiritual fellowship with the Lord. And it is to live with a clear conscience before the Lord. Romans 14, blessed is that man who does not defy his conscience and does not accuse his own conscience in what he approves. In other words, he's blessed who lives with a clear conscience before the Lord. And again, Jesus has already described the inner life of this kind of person, this faithful and sensible slave, the one who is actually blessed. And what tremendous blessings he, he gives to us. In chapter 5, you remember it? Blessed, blessed is the poor, are the poor in spirit. He is humble. He's one who is devastated of his own righteousness and looks to God alone to supply what we never can. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, those who are gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are merciful, they're pure in heart, they're peacemakers, and they suffer willingly for the sake of righteousness in the name of Christ. And what do they receive? They receive the kingdom of heaven. 
They receive eternal comfort. They receive the earth. They receive spiritual satisfaction. They receive mercy from God. They receive delight in the presence of God. They receive delight in being called sons of God. That is the character and the hopes and the delights of those who are blessed. And here, in this case, this servant is blessed. You are blessed as that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Now, there's a temporal aspect to this blessing, and that is the joy of obedience. That's the temporal aspect, the joy of obedience. But here he points us past that to the eternal realities. Look at what he says. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. And the idea here really is that of inheritance. Is that of inheritance. He is one who will receive and participate in all that is the master's. All that is the master's by his own right, this faithful slave will receive a part in it. 1 Peter 3.9 says this, You were called for the, the, the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. That you might inherit a blessing. That idea of inheritance includes a lot of different things. It's all part of the same inheritance. But looking at it from different angles, Matthew said... In verse, or Jesus said in Matthew 19, 29, the inheritance that we receive is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. In Matthew 25, 34, that we'll look at in a few weeks, it is salvation, or the kingdom of God. Or excuse me, in Matthew 19, it is eternal life. It is eternal life. In Matthew 25, it is the kingdom of God. In Hebrews 1, 14, it is those who will inherit salvation. Salvation In Hebrews 6, it is those who will inherit the promises. All of those things are a part of the inheritance that we have in Christ. But here he seems to be focusing particularly, particularly upon that inheritance that those who are faithful to him will receive upon his return, which is a part in his kingdom. It is a part in his kingdom on this renewed earth and that looks ultimately toward the new heavens and the new earth. The meek shall inherit what? They shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. In Revelation 21, 7, don't turn there, let me just mention it to you. He says this. So this is the new heavens and the new earth have come down from heaven. And he says in verse 7, He who overcomes, he who was faithful to the end, faithful until the time his master comes, will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He will be my son. He will inherit all of these things. And the idea then is also to reign with him. To inherit these things with him is to reign with him. It's to reign with him in the kingdom that he establishes right when he returns. Listen to this. Just listen to as I read some of these things. This is Revelation 24. And then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
They reigned with Him. They ruled with Him. They ruled under Him, but with Him. They ruled over His kingdom, under His authority, but with Him. With Him. He says in verse 22.5 of Revelation, just listen. Now we're in the eternal state. And he says, And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And this is inherent in this promise that he gives. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. He will come and ultimately this is those who will reign with Christ. Those who will receive an inheritance in the Son. Or receive an inheritance in the kingdom. And receive the inheritance of the new heaven and the new earth. And this is something that's really beyond our ability I think to fully comprehend, but it is something that we need to meditate on and to consider. As a matter of fact, let me just read this one section to you. In 1 Corinthians, Paul here is addressing teachers in the church. Now, there's a broader principle to all who are in the church, but he's, he's addressing those who are in the church, and he's addressing those who are bickering, those who are expressing disunity and a lack of harmony because of their own proud ambition in their ministry that God gives to them. But he says this in chapter 3. He says, The wisdom of this world is foolishness, uh, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows the reasoning of the wise, that they are useless. And he says this in terms of boasting. He says, So then let no one boast in men. If you're there, well, I told you not to turn there, but he says this in verse 21. What is the reason that Paul tells and grounds his command not to boast, to be humble, to not be in competition with others, to not try to outdo them? He says this, all things belong to you, for all things belong to you. Can you imagine that? He says whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. He says there's, there's no reason for boasting and that is the idea is foolishness because you already possess everything together. All things belong to you. All things belong to you. What a tremendous, what a tremendous promise. And this is the promise that's here made to this faithful slave. This one who is faithful to the end. This one who is demonstrating the reality of life and love for his Lord. He will receive when he returns an inheritance in the Lord. He will receive reigning with the Lord. That privilege of reigning with the Lord. And the idea here also speaks of reward. It has the idea of reward too. And Jesus again is going to deal with this in chapter 25 in the parable of the talents. But let me mention it here. And let me note first that a reward is an expression of grace. It's not of merit, it's of grace. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke 17. He says, 
When you do, so you remember the parable is of a slave who was out working in the field and he comes in and then the master doesn't say, hey, let me get you something to eat. You've been working so hard, it's hot outside. He says, no, fix me something to eat and then you may go uh, take some rest. And Jesus ends that little parable there by, with these words. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So what is the attitude of a slave of Christ? Is not to look at his life then and say, wow, God must reward me greatly because of the great merit of my life, the great effort that I have put in. No, the attitude of a servant of Christ is to say when we've done everything, we're still unworthy slaves. We only have done that which we ought to have done. And it is because of that reality that the lavishness of God's grace and rewards becomes clear. Because it could never be on anything that we have earned from God, but it is an expression of God's lavish grace for those who are faithful to Him. His lavish grace to those who are faithful. Service is what we should do. It's what we're required to do. It's not special. It's not special. And yet God yet rewards us for faithfulness. He rewards us for faithfulness. And notice what the reward of this slave is. It's not eternal do-nothingness. It's not, you know, his eternal dream of sitting on the couch and watching reruns. It's not this eternal place of having no responsibility. In fact, the reward of this slave is more responsibility, more service. Look at that. You were faithful in a little thing in which I put you in charge. Your reward is you have now more responsibility. I will put you in charge. I will put him in charge of all my possessions. And what does this say to us here? What does this say to us? Well, it says part of what was mentioned before is commandments are not burdensome. The same idea. It says this. If serving Christ is a burden here... Or to ask the question, is serving Christ a burden or a blessing? Does the idea of more opportunity to serve Christ, is that something that sounds depressing? Or is that something that sounds delightful? Does it sound depressing or delightful? Is service of Christ a burden? If it's a burden here, it would only be a burden forever. That certainly isn't one whose heart is fit for heaven. Here, however, the one whose heart is fit for heaven says, I delight to serve Christ on earth, and so I will delight to serve him even more in heaven. In heaven. That's a faithful slave. That's a faithful slave. And God rewards that person. So what does it mean to be watchful? What does it mean to be watchful? It is to be faithful. It is to be wise, a wisdom, a discernment that flows out of a faithful, obedient, submitted life. It is to serve the Lord with gladness, not with a sense of burden. It is to serve the Lord with a sense of reward, a sense of that lavish expression of grace that allows different capacities and greatness of opportunities to serve Him for eternity. It is the life that anticipates always standing in His presence. That is the life of a faithful and a sensible slave who will receive these privileges, these benefits, the inheritance in the Lord. And that's our encouragement to faithfulness. The joy of service and the promise of our reward and our inheritance in Christ. So I would just ask two questions before we look briefly at the, the disobedient servant. 
Are those things that motivate you? Are those things that motivate you? Again, the question at the beginning then, secondly, is are you a faithful and a wise slave? Do those things motivate you? If not, then there is the second example here. The first is of the faithful and the wise slave. But look at verses 48 through 51. There is the second example in verse 48 of an evil slave. An evil slave. And I've kind of summed this up by saying this is a warning to the self-indulgent. The warning to the self-indulgent. And it's a sharp contrast to the faithful and the wise slave. It's a sharp contrast to the one who made the most of his time. This one does not, the unfaithful slave. Rather, he takes what he thinks is opportunity to indulge self, to eat, drink, and be merry without consequence. Notice then his spiritual character of this evil slave. This evil slave. And in doing this, note this as well. That in addressing addressing the spiritual character of this slave, Jesus aims directly at the motives of the heart. He aims directly at the motives of the heart. Of the heart. Proverbs reminds us in chapter 4 to watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. What a person is in their heart, what you and I are in our heart, in our inner life, in our inner man, that we are before God and no better, regardless of what our outward life looks like. In other words, things can be done with a wrong heart. Proverbs 23 7 says, As he thinks within himself, so he is. So the reality of spiritual life and spiritual character is displayed in the heart. And that's exactly what Jesus is addressing here in a negative sense with this evil slave. Look at what he says in his evil motives. The evil slave, if that evil slave should say, in his heart. As soon as the master is away, he thinks there are no consequences and he does whatever he really wants to do. And this is, in fact, the character of the unregenerate. The unregenerate. They have no fear of God before their eyes. Matter of fact, he says in Psalm 10, this, just listen. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts, there is no God, or there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. And so he snorts at his enemies and he says, I will not be moved. And the idea there is is that this wicked person doesn't see any immediate consequences or threat from God. And so therefore he lives a life of indulging his own desires, his own pleasures. And we will turn to that in a moment. And so it is here, this slave. He says, my master is a long time in coming. And so in his heart he sees then opportunity to do what he really wants. And again, I think... Parenting is a good illustration here. Many of you, as we did, uh, probably told your children and explained to them when they were young that it's not what they do when you're around that proves their heart or their obedience, but what happens when you leave the room? What happens when I walk out of the room? What happens when you actually can get away with it? When you actually can get away with it? Now... Trish reminded one of our children, young, and said, God still sees you even when we're not here. To which that child responded, does he tell you? (laughs) And 
she was very tempted to say, yes, he does. And so be aware, I don't think she did. But the idea here is, is that that character is really displayed when what happens when there is the, not an immediate sense of threat. Not an immediate sense of threat. So let me ask you a question. This is a good question to pose to ourselves. If you knew, think of something wicked that has flashed in your mind that you may have had the desire to do. Something you knew was clearly disobedient or dishonoring to the Lord. If you knew that you could do something without negative consequences, if you knew that 100%, without the Lord bringing that act to judgment, would you still do it if it were unrighteous? Would you still do it? If the Lord said, I'm not going to punish you for that, would you still do it if you knew that it was not pleasing to him? That really shows our heart. That really shows our heart. This unrighteous slave displays what his answer is in that he would do it when there is no immediate threat. And I would suggest, as we already are well familiar with, that this is really what is behind atheism. It's really what's behind that idea and evolution that wants to rid us of the idea of God. It wants to rid us of the idea of authority, of accountability, to get out from under the threat of God. Some of y'all might know, I don't remember this happened last year, I can't remember, but Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, one of the most outspoken new atheists, they paid in a campaign to put signs on the side of buses to drive throughout London and Scotland and Wales, and essentially on the, or what it said on the side was, there's probably no God, so enjoy life. And they drove for, I think it was a period of three months, around these various places as a campaign to say, there's probably no God, so enjoy life. In a similar way, this slave here says, he's not coming in a long time, there's no real consequences, so I'll do what I want. I'll do what I want. And it would appear in the parable that he served his master only when there was immediate advantage or consequences. So the implication is, is that when his master was there, he obeyed, but as soon as he went away, he disobeyed. That's the implication. And this is the problem of the unregenerate heart. Because there is no real inward motive of fear for the Lord and love for Christ, because there's nothing to restrain us but threat if someone is unregenerate, no sense of inward submission to his authority, as I mentioned earlier, no fear of God before his eyes, as soon as there is consequence immediately represented to them, they will do what they want. It's that simple. That's why we need external law. That's why we need a police department. That's why we need, because if there's not an immediate threat, if there's not an immediate consequence for wickedness, then what is a wicked person going to do? They're going to do what they want to do. They're going to do what they want to do. In other words, they function out of only a threat of consequences. Only out of a threat of consequences. There's nothing inwardly in this person that constrains them to be faithful. And so as soon as that threat is removed, they do what they want. They do what they want. This is again the heart of the unconverted. There's a lot to say on this, but let me just read to you one verse. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says this. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are given fully to do evil. That's exactly what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. Because the sentence of an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the son of men are given fully to do evil. No threat, do what I want. 
threat, I'll control myself. The idea here, the master is away. I have no immediate threat of accountability for my actions. So then this slave says, I will do what I want. In a rather or a repeated illustration uh, that Barclay gave, William Barclay gave, and he said this. He says, there is a fable which tells of three apprentice, apprentice devils who were coming to the earth to finish their apprenticeship. They were talking to Satan, the chief of the devils, about their plans to tempt and ruin men and women. The first said, I will tell them there is no God. And Satan said, that will not delude many, for they know that there is a God. The second said, I will tell them there is no hell. And Satan answered, you will deceive no one that way. They know even now that there is a hell for sin. But the third said, I will tell them there is no hurry. Go, said Satan, and you will ruin them by the thousands. The most dangerous of all delusions is that there is plenty of time. That is the most dangerous. And so it is the delusion that the wicked live under. There is plenty of time. There is not immediate accountability. And so they act wickedly. And so he says of this slave, my master is not coming for a long time. He begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. Essentially giving himself over to self-indulgence, to live life as he pleases without threat. He lived violently. For one, he began to beat his fellow slaves. This is precisely the opposite of the Lord's command. He just told that faithful slave to do what? Care for them. Give them their food in the proper time. And so now that the Lord is away, this wicked slave, this evil slave does just the opposite. He does not care for others. He instead abuses them. He beats them. It has the idea here of harshness, even of disdain. There's a variety of ways that term for to beat is used, but one is in Matthew 27, 30, and it speaks of the Roman soldier's treatment of Christ. It says they spat on him and they took a reed and they begin to beat his head. It was, an, it was an act of disdain. It was an act of complete dishonor and disregard for that person. It was evil and it was cruel and it was wicked. And here is what this slave is here displaying. It's an unfeeling heart. And sometimes it even is used in terms of an outburst of anger. And so that's how he treats these fellow slaves. The mark of spiritual life, beloved, is love for others. That's a mark of spiritual life. Is love for others that flows out of a love for Christ. If you want to know if you're saved, you can ask, do I have that as a basic essential bent to my heart that I feel constrained to love others and particularly even other believers? He says this, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John 1. Those who know the Lord have a desire to love the brethren. There is a special, familiar, familial, I mean, unity, kind of love and closeness and a relationship that a believer has with other believers and has a general sense of love for mankind as God himself does. The desire to see the good of others, whether they're Christian or not. To see good in their life, not harm, not to see destruction, but rather to see good. Here he's particularly talking about other believers in 1 John. He says there is a love 
there is a love for others, exactly the opposite of what this one displays. In fact, John says that by this, in verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. The one who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So this wicked slave then is showing himself to be not a true servant of the king, but rather to be a child of the devil, a child of Satan, one who sees any opportunity that he can with no consequences to treat them with harshness, to treat them with disdain, no inner constraint to love them, to sacrifice for them, to meet their needs, which is the mark of those who have been redeemed. And he not only is he violent, he's self-indulgent. He eats and drinks with drunkards. Again, the mark of spiritual life is self-denial that comes from love for Christ. Self-control, that was covered in Sunday school. Here, that's not what he displays. Again, he says, sees only an opportunity to fulfill his lust. That is the very description of spiritual death. Pastor Reardon will pick that up in a couple of weeks in Ephesians 2. He describes it there as the spiritual death as the one who indulges the desires of the flesh and of the mind. What does spiritual death look like? It means I indulge whatever I want to do. And that could take on many different forms, but at the end of the day it is that I'm indulging my own desires without a sense of submission and fear and love of Christ. And so it is here with this servant. And there is indeed a special word to leaders here who see ministry only to satisfy their own corrupt desires. We won't turn there for sake of time. That's throughout Scripture. Isaiah 56, 11, Ezekiel 34. In 2 Peter, he talks about those who are like dogs who return to their vomit. They only have eyes full of adultery. They see all of the privileges that they have for ministry essentially only to fulfill their own lust and their own desires. It's those in 2 Timothy that go into houses and captivate weak women weighed down with sins. Well, here then is this evil slave who sees the the removal of threat as just an opportunity to give over into lust. There's nothing inside of him. There's nothing inside of the unregenerate. There's nothing inside, regardless of what kind of outward religious veneer they may or may not have, there's nothing inside of an unregenerate person that constrains them to honor the Lord. And so when sin can be gotten away with, it will be done. It's like a teenager whose parents go out of town and they throw a party. Or they invite their boyfriend or girlfriend over. They do all of those things that they can't do when their parents are in town. It's those who suppose in secret, they thinking that they can escape unnoticed if they cheat on their taxes. Or they take a quick glance at pornography or any other kind of sin that might tempt the soul. That's the idea here. It's the idea. There's no immediate threat, no immediate consequence. So I'm going to get away with what I can. I'm going to get away with what I can. And so here, this is what this wicked slave does. And there are consequences, though. That's his character. And his consequences are, though, our judgment. And we'll end with this. The Lord of that slave will come on that day. He does not expect. And at an hour in which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He will be surprised by the return of the Lord and the judgment that he brings. Essentially because he disregarded the threat or the concern. He was not alert. He was not watchful. He was not concerned about salvation. He was not concerned about honoring the Lord. And so he gave no thought to the account that he will have to give to the Lord when he returns. 
And so he will be then cast into hell. He will be cut in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus has described this many times before. In the end, it's basically those who neglect salvation, who neglect the warning of the Lord. The Lord is giving the warning, but if it is neglected, if it is met by an impenitent heart, if it is met by a foolishly wise in your own eyes kind of heart, like I know that he says that, I might vaguely believe it, but I don't take it seriously, it makes no practical effect on my life, then the threat is it will. It will when the Lord returns. It will if what marks the heart is a desire for the pleasures of this world or self-rule or self-indulgence. And that self-rule isn't some you know, egregious sort of offense. It just means that I live my life without a conscious, real submission to Christ as Lord. It could be a moral and nice person, but inwardly they don't live their life with any sense of under the Lordship of Christ out of love for Him and trust in Him. And so that is this person. But this is not God's desire for you. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, though he is glorified by it, though he finds pleasure in that glory and the exaltation of his holy justice. He would rather that there would be repentance, that there would be love for his son. That's why Christ came and he suffered and he dies and he rose again for the forgiveness of the repentant sinner. So in the words of Isaiah, he cries out, Turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved and be saved And so the warning here, though harsh and though severe, is to the end that those who are not able to answer, yes, I am that faithful slave, I can see that in my life, that they would turn from their sin and embrace the saving mercy of the Lord who receives all who are repentant. All who turn to Him, He's like the Father who runs out and lavishes love, the Father does on that repentant sinner, lavishes grace. And so we celebrate that, those of us who know him, that we have been spared from that wrath because of Christ bearing it on the cross in our place. And in the bread and in the representative bread of his body and the wine, as it were, of his blood, we are, those who know him, again reminded and refreshed and encouraged and delighting in fellowship with the Lord to be and seeking from him that faithful and that wise and that sensible slave. Let's pray and then the men will pass out the elements. Father, we thank you for your word. And our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us truth. Showing us the way which is through you, which is in you. Which is to embrace you by faith. To embrace you by faith, not only in your past work, but in your present work to embrace you in a way that the the every moment of our life is a display of a living relationship with you, a desire to honor you, one who is constrained by love because your love has been poured out within our hearts, one that's constrained to obedience because of delight in you, because obedience is good and brings joy. Lord, I pray that that would mark our lives as the people of God, And I pray, Lord, for those in whom that is not the internal reality of their heart, that they would, in fact, take your warning seriously, meditate on these things. Do even, as we mentioned last week, to meditate on the circumstances of death and standing before you and see whether whether their life can pass the test. And I pray that if it does not, you would lead them to faith even today. 
And for the rest of us that we may rejoice again, delighting in your work, your death, and your resurrection on our behalf. Bless us in this time and help us to engage in sincere worship in these moments ahead of us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.